As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. So Tracy, we are here at the Milken Institute conference in uh, Beverly Hills. I know. It's very fancy. It's very, uh, how's it been going for you so far? It's been fun. I uh, I talked a lot about credit. I watched your panel about crypto and I have to say there were definitely more people at the crypto panel than there were at the credit panel. <laughs> and also... Every panel that I've seen that's not about crypto. Someone asks a question. Yeah, they're like, oh, what's your opinion about crypto, right? Yeah. Like everyone, no matter what, people just like want to know about it. Someone from the audience submitted a question about how crypto would impact inflows into investment grade. And it, you know, interesting thought. (laughs) Well, crypto is one of those things, too, where I, regardless of, everyone gets an opinion on it, Mm -hmm. regardless. So everyone wants to know everyone's take, even if it's not their specialty. (laughs) This is very true. But I'm very excited because today we're going to be speaking to someone who knows a lot about crypto, now just a tourist. And I think a topic that we haven't really talked about that much is um, blockchain architecture and design. And, you know, all of these panels, like everyone's talking to, it's like, they're super like fanciful. It's like, oh, it's going to create this world of like openness and transparency. Right. And it's going to cut out all the fees and it's going to be so great. Which is really weird because when I think of blockchains, I think of high fees in low settlement or long settlement times and basically like (laughs) all kinds of interesting trade-offs and many things that are uh, worse than the existing financial system. So I feel like people are jumping over some like basic architectural points in this whole conversation. Right. The other thing that gets me, especially at conferences like this, is everyone wants to talk about crypto. Everyone seems to have an opinion about it. But I have my doubts about whether people actually understand the underlying technology and whether or not they're differentiating between different blockchains and things like that. I think people might understand the basics like proof of stake versus proof of work, layer two versus layer one or whatever. But like within those technology buckets, I don't think people are really thinking about the nuance. No, it's a lot of like, it's all just going to be really good. And it's going to be really (laughs) great for financial inclusion and democracy and all that stuff. So anyway, let's have a real conversation about how these chains work and what you can do with them. Let's do it. All right. I'm really excited. Uh, Our guest knows a lot about this stuff. We're going to be speaking with Arthur Brightman. He is the founder and creator of the Tezos blockchain project, one of the sort of original projects that thought about smart contracting and uh, malleability in a way that, you know, much more advanced than or seemingly more advanced than what you can do on, say, uh, Bitcoin. So we're going to talk about what you could do with the chain. So, uh, Arthur, thank you so much for coming on Oddlots. And thank you for having me. Yeah, you know, we've been interacting on uh, Twitter for years and years, so I'm excited. Uh, I'm excited that you're here. Yeah, me too. So, Erna, you know, like, when you, what do you think when you hear all these people at these conferences and you're here too, and they're like, "Oh, it's going to like be really cheap. It's going to lower the fees for everything. It's going to be super fast. Transparency, financial inclusion. It's going to save democracy. It's going to save the planet, etc." Like, what what goes through your mind? I mean, I think some of it is true, and some some of some of it is is false in terms of reducing the fees compared to uh, traditional financial infrastructure. I actually think you know this is one of the real ones that um, really? that we can actually do this. Yes, uh, we can lower the entry costs for 
uh, creating financial products or financial systems, uh, make it a little more innovative and, uh, and, and develop these things much faster than they have in the past. I do believe that um, you can remove a lot of intermediaries and a lot of the friction in the financial system comes from the fact that you need to rely on trusted intermediaries. Um, as an intermediary, you have oftentimes a big opportunity for fraud. Right. Um, and monitoring that fraud has uh, a lot of cost. Uh, I mean, also, um, you have to deal with only a few people who are going to be trusted. Uh, if you can re- get rid of that, you can actually generally uh, reduce costs. So I, I, that, I, I do believe this part of the story. I don't know that it's going to save the planet and, and, and do all these um, grandiose things. I have a, a story I have about this is I once gave um, a talk at a, uh, uh, you know, some sort of dead-like event, and uh, it was about the promises of blockchain. And I gave an right. example for some of the overhyped ideas. And I said, well, imagine, for example, that uh, we're going to put, you know, plastic bags are killing turtles. But the problem is we don't know where they came from. If we could identify who leaks a plastic bag you know, it solved the problem. So let's put a plastic bag in a blockchain and we'll save turtles. And I gave that as the example yeah. of like some of the nonsense you could see. Right. And someone pitched me that exact idea <laughs> the next month. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, just going to fees though. I mean, a, a very cynical person would say that the fees exist because yes, there are underlying costs like fraud and KYC and AML and stuff like that. But if you were being very pessimistic about the whole thing, you would also say that financial intermediaries, traditional financial intermediaries, they like to make money. Uh, and a lot of those fees are opportunistic. So I, I guess my question is, like, do those fees actually exist because of what the intermediaries are doing and the cost or because of the way the system works? And how do we make sure that in crypto, we don't end up with centralized intermediaries that are going to charge big fees anyway? I mean, you know, I think everyone who's in business likes to make more more profit and likes to charge more fees. And uh, people are going to charge whatever amount of fees they can get away with in general. Uh, so at some point, there's competitive pressure, right? And uh, in finance, it's true that sometimes a lot of the competitive pressure is not is not present. You'll have people pay, you know, 1% commission on a trade because they're doing it through a private bank. And, you know, they trust that the private bank and right. do good execution and so on and so forth. And that nonsense, it doesn't cost that to execute a trade. Not at all. But the reason that they're doing it is because, well, they feel that they need the trust of this very prestigious mm-hmm. intermediary. If you remove that need, if you remove uh, um, if you remove that, that, that notion of trust, I think you get something that's more competitive mm-hmm. because... You know, if the thing is uh, is is, is going to work regardless of who you route it through, uh, and reputation doesn't matter all that all that much, it limits the ability of uh, for intermediaries to charge large fees. Now, some people will try, of course, especially I would say there's a, there's going to be a cottage industry of uh, there already is um, in crypto of people who want to deal with more traditional investors mm-hmm. and who are going to reassure them that no, 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 it's all going to be fine. Mm-hmm. I mean, we see it. You know, you have you could buy you could buy Bitcoin and even hold it with a custodian if you're worried about self custody risk, right? right? Uh, but nonetheless, you'll find funds which charge you, uh, you know, uh, management fees for, for for holding this. So there's there's some people are always going to want that, but it's still is it's, it's putting some pressure down on costs. Can you talk a little bit about your background and the founding of Tezos? Because you were a trader at Goldman Sachs, right? And so what do you, what did you do? What was your position in traditional finance originally? And what did you see early on? Uh, that you thought there was like an opportunity to port some of these ideas or to, the opportunity you saw in uh, creating your own uh, chain? Well, my background is in computer science and statistics. And my first jobs I was working on as a quant. Yeah. So I started out in statistical arbitrage. And then I moved to, uh, in 2009, I, uh, I moved to Goldman to do uh, high-frequency trading. I uh, worked on ETF market making, natural gas market making. I also worked at uh, Morgan Stanley and a few other uh, places on this, uh, on these topics. Uh, I've also done some robotics uh, after that, but mm. it was uh, quite quite different. The thing that attracted me to uh, to cryptocurrencies is it was at the intersection of a lot of centers of interest that I had. I have been interested in the theory of money and banking mm-hmm. uh, for a long time. So you know, how does money arise? What makes good money? What makes bad money? And I remember, you know, way before Bitcoin, you know, convincing myself that the best mo- the best money possible is backed by nothing. Right? If you use mm. gold, for example, there's a problem with the fact that if you know, if demand for gold increases, you get more mining. And so, you know, that's a waste, you know, because gold is used as a monetary instrument. You know, in, a, in an ideal world, we would have mined all the gold and increased demand doesn't create demand for all, all this because it doesn't serve a purpose to have more gold once you have a, a given supply and, uh, 
I guess we could argue that having a CCT in a uh, in a monetary supply it can have some some value, but it's I didn't see it that way. And um, when, so when cryptocurrencies come around, I, I mostly notice notice bad criticism around it. So people yeah. always say like, "Oh, it's backed by nothing," and I'm like, "No, that's great. That is what you want with the uh, with the currency." I was interested in the cryptographic aspect because I also had you know I have a mathematical background. I was interested in cryptography. The uh, um, uh, individual sovereignty aspect was also something that appealed to me from a political standpoint. So I, I, I really, uh, it really attracted me uh, early on. So you were one of the first ones to move from proof of work to proof of stake. Is that right? Or, no, we never no. use proof of work. Right. We're sorry. Proof of stake from day one. I mean, you you were one of the first to like actually do proof of stake. What was it like? What was the opportunity there? And like, why did you immediately latch on to that versus proof of work? I got interested in doing Tezos because of my interest in proof of stake. Um, around 2013, there were a lot of innovation in the space around uh, proof of stake, smart contracts, privacy. People were coming up with it was an explosion of research and innovation around the, around the space. And one thing I noticed early in the Bitcoin culture is that there was not a whole lot of appetite in trying to integrate any of these uh, any of these upgrades into Bitcoin. And it's sort of a point of pride for yeah. them, that, right? Like that it's so. It's uh, the code is so ossified, or that it's so hard to. There, there's a big uh, I, I, part of it is pride, but I also think part of it is uh, uh, sour grapes. Mm. You know, for a while the narrative was very different. For a while, was people in Bitcoin circles were saying, you know what, all these altcoins is just laboratories. They're going to find the best, you know, ideas, and we can always integrate those ideas into Bitcoin. Mm. And we move from that to, oh, all those ideas are bad. Yeah. And no, you know, we we couldn't uh, we couldn't benefit from any of them in Bitcoin, which I think is a little sad because a lot of these ideas are good and important and have found product market fit. This is one of the like ironies of Bitcoin. I think it's technology is going to save us in many ways, but also we don't want the technology to advance too much because we like it the way it is, or we can't actually do it. I, and I understand the perspective. I think from the Bitcoin perspective, there's a big risk if you. If you let people change the ledger, mm. that the changes that you end up having are not merely technological improvements, but actually change um, the nature of Bitcoin and it change its economic properties. Mm. So I think what Bitcoiners, all of Bitcoiners feel is that if they open the door to technological changes, they're also going to open the door to social control of the economic properties of Bitcoin, right. which is something that they absolutely do not want. So in some sense, they, they felt like they had to shut the door completely on, uh, almost completely on changes in order to preserve the economic properties. Let's talk a little bit about what you see happening on chain. We had a recent episode of the podcast with another person who once did uh, ETF market making or ETF trading, <laughs> Sam Bankman-Fried, and he was asked to describe yield farming. And we thought we were going to get this sort of very complicated answer about I don't know, something, but it turns out in his characterization, yield farming is you they they'll pay you to put money in a box, and if you put money in a box before other people put money in the box, then you have a bigger part of the box. And it kind of it sounded to a lot of people not that different from a Ponzi scheme. What did you think about that? Is that a fair characterization of uh, yield farming? I think it's a it's a fair characterization of uh, the way it's practiced. Uh, you know, if you wait by volume, yeah, or, uh, or or by prominence, then yes, it's a fair characterization. I wouldn't throw the baby with the bathwater. I think there's something there. You know, the the more generous way of looking at it is, let's say you want to uh, you want to launch a token, you want to distribute it in some way, you want to get some liquidity, so you use part of your token supply as a way to need to uh, incentivize people for providing liquidity for it. Uh, and you could see, uh, you could see a company doing this. You could do this with equities. You could say, "Look, I have some equity. My business will be more appealing to investors if there's liquidity around uh, around this equity. So I could set away, you know, I could set aside some equity and, and and incentivize my investors to provide liquidity." The issue with that, that it seems to me, and I think we have seen this in crypto, is that once the equity is distributed, mm. if your model inherently is about I guess, paying for customers in the form of equity. Then once all the equity is distributed, do you really have good customers or do you just have a base of people who are going to now go find the next company giving out equity for liquidity? And when I look at like crypto, you know, I look at all these like DeFi protocols that were huge in the summer of 2021 and now they're like charts are way down. And I kind of get the impression that the game is, yes, you find the company or the protocol giving out Governance tokens, as they're called, equity, 
And then at some point, the equity runs out. And rather than sticking around, you just go find the next thing. Yeah, no, I, 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 I don't disagree with that. There's a lot of, uh, uh, it's, it's very circular. The, the way I phrase it sometimes is that you see a lot of innovation in DeFi from a technological perspective or even from a financial engineering perspective. But the point of DeFi cannot just be to trade DeFi tokens. Right. Mm-hmm. And right now, that is mostly the point of DeFi. So you need to, um, I think you need to anchor it to some uh, actually, you know, a, a real use case and uh, where real demand comes from. So historically, Tezos has avoided DeFi, right? You haven't been that involved in it in the way that, say, Ethereum has. But I think you started something last year called liquidity baking. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Can you explain that? Like, how is that different to the other bad uh, <laughs> yield farming all the way down type DeFi? Of course. So, I, first of all, I would challenge the fact that Tezos has this cute, uh, uh, you know, DeFi. I would, the way I say it is, you know, Tezos is not sentient. It's a it's it's a project, and they are DeFi protocols running on uh, on, on on Tezos. Uh, the the Tezos Foundation um, helps, uh, uh, in general, the growth of the Tezos ecosystem. We distribute grants, and we've given some grants to some DeFi projects. So there's no, uh, you know, there's no animosity or anything against yeah. uh, DeFi. I think it has had a, a little less traction uh, on Tezos and on other chains mm. for a variety of reasons. Uh, but yes, so liquidity baking uh, is uh, is interesting. It's um, it was a modification of the protocol itself. Mm. So at the protocol level. Um, an amendment was passed and ratified and voted on by the uh, by, uh, by the validators of the network that would uh, take a, a, a small fraction of the uh, very small fraction of the tokens minted on every block, and then use that uh, deposit that into a pool to incentivize liquidity provision between Bitcoin and Tez. Mm. So the idea is that you have a little more inflation in your protocol. I think it mm. comes down to about zero point three percent per year. So you know it's not it's it. Not very, very meaningful for you know something that has uh, uh, a daily standard deviation of like about five percent, you know, like a few percent. So it's zero point two percent per year, but it's it's incentivized people to uh, to be willing to provide liquidity between Bitcoin and uh, and Tez. And the point is that first of all, these are not gigantic yield. The point is not to try to attract people with uh, gigantic yields, or the point is not to try to bootstrap something uh, something new. It's just it's a cost. You pay a very small cost in terms of inflation and you get something in return, which is liquidity provision. I want to go back to the box for a second because in theory, the box could become a bank, right? So in theory, we could all put money into the box, we get some equity, and then in theory, it could start, I don't know, making loans or doing something with economic purpose, something that actually creates value such that DeFi is not just trading of DeFi tokens. Right. This is like the SPAC argument, right? You're sort of putting money in a box that might but become something. But then something, something. Maybe, But is anything becoming that? I mean, I have, we have the famous crypto SPAC. You basically have something that's nonsense. You get a high valuation and then you turn that into actually making something yeah, that yeah. works. Uh, we've seen some people attempt that. I don't know that anyone has really, uh, really, really succeeded at pulling off the crypto SPAC so far. But uh, it was an interesting move. Certainly, like people pointed at uh, projects like Chainlink, for example. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, started out uh, a little, you know, not, not not very coherent, and then started like you know hiring serious academic and like doing really serious yeah. work in uh, in cryptography for this. Um, so you know, it remains to be seen whether or not that uh, that's pulled off. Uh, but for me, it's more about it's not about how serious you are. It's more about you know, at the end of the day, you know. It's about value creation. Like, what value yeah. are you creating? Mm. And it can't be completely internal. Another way to think about it is, right. sometimes I, uh, I'll visit a small town and uh, I'm thinking, what are the exports of this town? Right? right. So you have economic activity, you have restaurants, but the restaurant is for the people who work here, so they have to work on something. So at the end of the day, you know, right. what, do, what do you export? What does DeFi export? Yeah, that's a good question. Right. You know, what 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 are you doing? Are you because if you're looking at uh, there's there's a cynical view of uh, financial markets that's I really um, I, I, I really reject, which is the idea that all the financial market is just a giant casino, everything right. is zero sum. It's very uh, popular view, but I don't you know like financial markets are very important because um, they help get liquidity. Uh, you know, secondary market gets uh, get liquidity and uh, it helps capital formation for companies and companies actually build things. Yes. Right. So th- there's generally value in financial market. It helps companies that do things and build things. And unless you're actually doing this in some ways uh, with DeFi, it's, it's going to remain incestuous and it's going to remain circular.
a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Since since you said this, since you're not a fan of DeFi for the sake of DeFi, can I broaden this out massively and ask, what is the use case of blockchain? And uh, we ask this all the time. And, you know, yesterday, Joe was on a panel with Algorand, and they announced a big partnership with FIFA. And Joe asked the FIFA president, well, what are you guys going to be doing in this new partnership? And he basically said, we don't really know. We have a bunch of ideas. We're just really into crypto and we want to be a modern company. And we hear so many of these partnerships, and I feel like it's still kind of unclear what it is that you can do with a blockchain like Tezos versus traditional technology or financial architecture. Yeah, absolutely. So I think for me, the the, the basic, the most basic use case, and maybe the most important one, is a censorship-resistant store of value, like being able to... Uh, store wealth in a way that isn't anyone's liability. Because if you think about it, if you have a bank account, that's still the bank's liability. If you have a brokerage account, you probably don't even own you know, the shares in name. And even if you did own the shares, it's still the company's liability, right? The shares right. are like liability of the company to you. Uh, there's very, very few assets which are not someone else's liability. You have real estate, but it's not easily portable. Mm-hmm. Um, you could own precious metals, but again, you know, uh, as bare assets, they're kind of complicated. So it's unique in this respect. It's a bare asset that you can transact with across the world. So that's a second use case, um, making very easy cross-border payments, mm-hmm. very cheap cross-border payments without intermediaries. Um, and I think, you know, if you live in a... Um, in, in, in a reasonably free country, it might not seem like a like a big deal, but as soon as repression starts start turning on, you're pretty glad that you have a censorship-resistant store of value. Um, that viewpoint often gets a little derided because people will point at people holding Bitcoin or all these other cryptocurrencies and say, "Well, look at you know look at them you know holding Bitcoin on exchanges. They're not concerned with that." Well, maybe they're not, but maybe they think that other people are going to be concerned with that, and um, they help set a price for the for the store of value. So. I don't, you know, it's, it's you basically either using the store of value or speculating on the fact that people are going to use the store of value. And I think that's completely fine. So here's my other very broad question, which is, do people actually care about decentralization in crypto? And then secondly, how do you measure decentralization? And again, I asked the question because this happened again at Milken, but Kathy Wood from ARC was talking about the new thing they're working on is some sort of systematized way or systematic way to actually measure decentralization in crypto. So how do you actually do it? And does it matter? So if you're looking today at the behavior of, uh, of you know, price setters in markets, uh, whoever is, you know, uh, the, the marginal buyer for, uh, for cryptocurrency does not care about decentralization, right? That's so anything that's been pretty clear. But I, I believe that for these systems to present some value, they need to be decentralized. Otherwise, they'll be outcompeted. You know, um, if, if you have some use case for your blockchain, you have to ask yourself, you know, what do I do that Amazon AWS cannot do better as a service? Right. And I think the answer to that oftentimes is going to rely on decentralization. So there's been a decoupling in the sense that people don't care. But at the end of the day, when the rubber hits the road, um, decentralization does matter. But I think we're going to need to see more cases of blockchains being insufficiently decentralized and running into trouble for people to start caring. How do you measure it? Decentralization? Yeah. There's many ways to uh, to think about it. You, you can have the, uh, I would say, de jure decentralization where like, well, you know, there's no, no single party is in charge. Um, but then de facto decentralization is like, not only is that true, but on top of that, you know, no party, no party is too prominent or has too much of, a, of, a, of an impact on the network. 
Um, and then you could be looking at it in terms of the most narrow sense would be the consensus algorithm, you know, who can attack the uh, mm-hmm. integrity of the chain. But it could also be, you know, who has influence in this network, who can, uh, uh, who has the, the clout to uh, uh, suggest hard forks, for example. Um, it could be who is uh, who is building infrastructure that's critical for, for this. So you have many, many degrees of, uh, of that. So just on this topic, I mean, there there do seem to be benefits and drawbacks to decentralization. And we've seen, for instance, with Ethereum, Ethereum has a figurehead in the form of Buterin. And they have been able to do some stuff relatively quickly that probably a truly decentralized protocol would have difficulty doing. And I think Tezos has a a unique governing structure where you are quite decentralized from what I understand. So has that been like, how do you feel about that? Has that been a drawback or is that a big benefit of the protocol? And how do you weigh those two things? Uh, well, I think in general, decentralization is a cost, right? That you have, to, and, and there's benefits associated to that cost, right? So I think it's, it's, it's worth paying, but it's, it feels almost like an insurance premium, you know, right? You mm. pay, you, you pay the insurance and months after months and you say, why am I paying this insurance? And then you have a fire and you're glad you paid for the insurance. Mm-hmm. So it's it's very easy to see the cost of decentralization and the benefits are um, are not always as uh, as obvious immediately. In terms of Tezos, we have a governance procedure that uh, allows for upgrades to the chain. So anyone can propose an upgrade on a Tezos chain, and uh, it's set to a vote. And if the vote passes, and it's a very conservative vote, happens over three months. But if the vote passes, the upgrade is adopted. Mm-hmm. There's a side effect though, because in order to have a mechanism that completely automated upgrades through voting, a lot of engineering work. Uh, from the, from the very beginning, went into making easy upgrades, mm. and just as a side effect of that, that's that's a benefit, you know, unrelated to the decentralization. Mm. It's just the fact that it's really easy to to um, to do hot swaps of the protocol mm. has let us uh, uh, upgrade faster. We've had about nine upgrades in the past uh, three years, and we have the tenth upgrade being voted on right now. I want to go back to Tracy's question about use cases, because okay, store of value, I get it. Cross-border payments or payments, I get it. But on the other hand, like, I kind of think Bitcoin has solved those problems. And so, or to some extent. And so when I think about like a smart contracting platform, and when I'm here at Milken and everyone is talking about, we're going to be trading real estate on the blockchain or virtual worlds and, you know, virtual land and where like, you know, you're cartoon ape can live or whatever i want to push further on like what can we do with a blockchain that we can't do uh with a traditional database and what that's going to look like and what what applications are going to take off and actually change society or as you put it and i really like the phrase and i'm going to steal it from now and it's like the block what are the blockchains exports going to be mm. yeah um and i think you know it uh, the, the most natural the, the highest uh impedance match is store of value and then we, yeah. we we go down from there, but it's there's still a lot of value that's present. So we've you know we did uh, uh, there was a fair number of uh, security token offering on the, on the Tezos blockchain, and a lot, yeah. a lot of them have come from the real estate world. And they were people sorry the what world real estate world. Oh yeah, okay. There were a lot of people tokenizing real estate on, on on blockchains, and they weren't doing it. You know, it was not an innovation now with a bank saying like, oh, we got to do something with blockchain. You know, they came from people who actually had the need and actually had the use case, and they saw the value, hmm. and I don't think it's impossible for a centralized system to um, to do this, but having a system that secure, that's automated, that's global. I think you know, the, the the global aspect, the fact that it's it just works, and you have this entire infrastructure around it. You have wallets, you have custodians. Um, think of it as, as some sort of layer that plugs in into a large yeah. ecosystem mm. um, that supports it. That lowers your cost. So there's value here. It doesn't come straight from the decentralization. I think it comes from the network effect of having a generic platform where you can build all sorts of things. So I have a dumb question, and I think I've asked this before, which probably makes it extra dumb. But when you actually tokenize something like real estate or you know a JPEG that becomes an NFT, what exactly are like what are you buying? Because my understanding is you're basically buying a database entry, and then there has to be some external body, right. like an open sea that, that points can, you in the direction well, of it. And also, just to add on to it, in theory, there needs to be some legal legal recourse, right? Such that the owner mm. of that token actually is entitled to the cash flows of the property, whether that's in yeah. the rent or in the sale of it. That, it, as opposed to whoever just happens to be there, takes the money. Yeah. 
there, there's a lot of arguments uh, in, in, in uh, around this space that, and, I, and I've been guilty of that. That if you follow the argument, you you will reach you know very strong conclusions, and then there's always some subtlety. You see, like, oh, this could be centralized, and therefore there's no value. And so, for example, the legal resource is a really good example. Um, sometimes you'll hear, look, there's no point in having uh, tokenized real estate on a chain because at the end of the day, you're not going to be able to, you know, if you want to assert your rights, you'll have to go to a court, you'll have to yeah. go to like whoever the issuer is, mm-hmm. they can refuse to honor it, so all the security of the blockchain is for naught. And I think that's um, that's taking the argument way too far. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a saying that possession is uh, nine-tenths of the law. And in some sense, uh, smart contracts is automated possession. So sure, uh, you could have legal challenges, you could have all of all, all sorts of things, but it reverses the burden. Uh, I think it's uh, Nick Zabo who says that smart contracts reverse the burden of the lawsuit. Hmm. And that's really interesting because, you know, you'll get transferred the title of something. You can start doing things because, hey, you know, it, it works with lending protocols. It's integrated in everything. And if people somehow think that, you know, you're not entitled to it, they have to sue you and they have to uh, to claim it back as opposed to you saying like, hey, I, I need this. So, and you see this in the traditional financial system in the form of escrow, right? If you have a small party dealing with a large party and they say like, look, if you don't pay us, there's no way we're going to be able to sue you, right? So you use escrow for that. And I like to think of smart contracts as automated escrow. Escrow exists because the two parties don't trust each other. So the solution that you're creating is basically trying to to fix that trust problem. But I guess like, I guess my question is, it goes back to that what are you buying aspect. So I buy tokenized real estate, I still have to trust the person who's selling it to me, because there still has to be an entry somewhere, or there still has to be a centralized party that's telling me that this database entry points to that thing over there. Absolutely. But I still say you trust them with less than if you were just signing okay. paper documents. So it's a matter of degrees. Absolutely. Okay. And in some sense with the JPEGs and the arts, I think it's it's more trustless in some, in some sense with it because there's no there's nothing tangible, right? It, it's mm. not like they come, somehow they can say, no, you don't own that, uh, you don't own that thing. Because what you're buying is a, uh, I think if you buy a piece of art, for example, and, you know, just to be sure, a lot of people buying JPEGs are just buying it because they see it go up and sure. they say, like, I'll buy it and then I'll sell it tomorrow. There's a lot of gambling associated with it, right? But there's also a genuine art community. Uh, there's, right. like, genuinely digital artists who are minting uh, digital art and selling it. And the argument that I like the most here is, like, okay, so digital art is a thing and that's mm-hmm. not going to go away. Mm-hmm. People want to collect it. People always want to collect art. So what's the alternative, you know? I, before uh, before that, people would collect digital art and they would receive a, a paper certificate saying, you own, right. you, know, you, you own this piece. You're not going to put it on some corporate database. You want something that's, that's going to be here for the long run. You want something that gives you some meaningful form of ownership. So the best substrate for that is a blockchain. So I, I do think there's a really good impedance match mm-hmm. for art, digital art and, uh, and blockchains. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk a little bit more about what the future looks like. And, you know, Tezos is an Ethereum competitor. And a lot of the things that you can do on Tezos, you could do on Ethereum and, and presumably on Solana and Avalanche and the Binance chain and all these di- – and Algorand, et cetera. Is your view – and this is a question that I was wondering, like, in your vision, is there one chain that wins out? You know, is it 
I mean, you would want it to be uh, Tezos, but is the, are we going towards one chain that's the winner or is it, as they say, a multi-chain world? So uh, again, to my point, there's, there's absolutely these arguments where you can say, well, you know, there's network effect in having one chain. Um, there's And, you know, like you have more security, you have more assets, more composability. So yeah. one chain wins all. Uh, and there's limits to all these uh, absolutely this argument. The way I like to think about it is um, as, you know, if you have salts in a... Uh, uh, in, a, in a solution and then you let it crystallize. If you crystallize very, really quickly, uh, you get something like uh, like glass. Uh, if mm. you crystallize very slowly, you get a few big crystals. So the lowest energy state is just like one big single crystal. Mm. But you're not going to get to the lowest energy states uh, because at some point you'll have things that crystallize. So what it means is that, yes, we have a multi-chain, multi-chain world, but the applications on the chains will stay because they have their own network effects. So I don't think we're going to have chains that specialize on a use case in a technical sense. There's no way you can meaningfully say, oh, this chain is the best technologically speaking for sports, and this chain is the best technologically speaking for finance. The designs are logically going to to converge. However, if you have a lot of really, really popular applications which are talking to each other and form their own ecosystem on a chain, they're not necessarily all going to migrate away from one chain to another just because they can get, you know, absolutely more security in doing so. Can you can you talk a little bit more about that interoperability yeah. point? Why is it so technologically difficult? You know, give us a really like easy to understand explanation of why it's so technologically difficult to make the chains work together. Mm. The main thing that a blockchain does is maintain consensus, right? Mm-hmm. That's a hard problem that they uh, that they solve. And if you want to have two chains communicate with each other, they need to be in consensus with each other. I mean, each chain needs to know what state the other one is in. Mm-hmm. But at this point, if to, to, to have them be in consensus with each other, you would need to have all the validators of one chain be all the validators on the other chain. In some, and, and by the time you've done that, you've essentially merged the, the two chains. So fundamentally, bridges that port state from one chain to another are hard. You are um, either increasing the computational cost on your network or you're losing security properties. And we've some of the big hacks, and we haven't, I don't think we've talked about it on the show before, but some of the big hacks that people hear about in crypto lately have been on these bridges, right? Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about like what's going on? How are they, why are they, why is security inherently difficult and what have um, exploiters discovered about the weaknesses inherent in these bridges? So, First of all, the bridges are a big honeypot because in general, the way a bridge works is you're going to put all your assets in, uh, on a chain in one little pot and then you're going to mint a representation of those assets on the other chain. So you have a big pot of money that's sitting there. So first of all, you're a very good target for, for hacks. So I lock up, say, $10 million worth of value on Ethereum and then I mint $10 million on Tezos that represents a claim to that ten million on Ethereum. That's right. So that's a lot of money. All right. So that's a honeypot. But keep going. Or, so, uh, yeah, but, that, but that's the first thing. It's like yeah. you know what 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 motivates security attacks is uh, is money. Right. And the second thing is so it depends. Not every bridge is created equal, and yeah. some bridges have way more a way more secure design. If you look at you know the entire Cosmos ecosystem is yeah. built is built around the idea of having these bridges, uh, light client bridges between chain. Now that's more secure than other approaches. And, but a typical approach is you're going to have a set of signers. So a lot of people, set of people who are going to monitor both chains, they're going to see what happens, and then they will sign messages saying like, "Yep, I got deposit on this chain," and you notify the other chain that deposit happens, mm. and vice versa. But those signatories have the power to take away the funds because they could pretend that the deposits happened that never happened, or that a withdrawal happened that never happened. Mm. They need to, so they need to be in consent. They need to follow the two chains. But there's a lot of attacks you could do. Uh, first of all, you know, if you have, I don't know, um, the Polygon, for example. So Polygon is uh, it's an L1 chain that markets itself as an L2 chain on, uh, on, on, on Ethereum. They have 5 billion. <laughs> Sorry, explain that. Just a quick diversion. What do you mean? It's an L1 chain that... Yeah, so Poly- Polygon is an L1 network. Okay. And, and the proof is that they are actually investing in L2 solutions. You know, if you're an L2, you don't invest in L2 solutions for, for scaling yourself. Uh, but as far, a lot of their marketing initially was like, no, no, no. Bill on Polygon is just like billing on Ethereum scaling because Ethereum. we're all part of scaling Ethereum, but their incentives <laughs> yeah. are at odds with, with that of the Ethereum right. ecosystem. All right, keep going. It's been a re- good growth hack to, uh, to, to say like, no, no, we're complementary to Ethereum, uh, but everyone's competing. 
And uh, so the Polygon contract has is a five out of eight multi-sig. And it has like a few billions of value. Like if you're if you're holding a signature and you have so there's eight people, yeah. And in theory, to access those billions, you just need to get five of them. That's right. Okay, just to, just yeah. high stakes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And uh, so yeah, it's it's, it's high stake, and you're not where are you going to put this signature? You're not going to put it in your apartments. Right. You know, um, you need to be able to access it, so you can't even put it in the bank vault. So you need some sort of, like, probably some data center. But even if you have a data center, now you have to think of, like, well, who has access to it? Right. You know, uh, when there's billions, the, the, if, if your attack is worth billions, the budget that you have for actually tricking things, I mean, you, know, you have people being kidnapped, for example. There's a, there's a lot of, uh, wow. I mean, for billions of dollars, it's not, you know, it's not impossible. Right. People have been kidnapped for a lot less than that. Mm. So that's you know there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of risk uh, uh, associated with uh, with running a bridge. If you look at um, Axie Infinity, for example, yeah. so they're not on Ethereum; they're running a clone of Ethereum, and there's a bridge, and they were hacked uh, right. for like eight hundred million or something like that. And it's easy to look at this and say like, ah oh, ha ha, you know, silly NFT games. They right. got hacked. They're probably sloppy with security. And uh, I have no idea. Uh, I have no idea what's you know what's backing it. But I've seen a bunch of people say like, apparently the evidence points at you know them being hacked by North Korea. Because you know, for six hundred yeah. million for North Korea, that's a lot. That's a lot of uh, yeah. that's, that's meaningful money. But if your adversaries are nation states, right. that puts the you know that puts the security. And you don't really have the security problem. Like the way that blockchains are designed, like the security works a lot uh, a lot better. You know, everyone's responsible for their own safety. You don't have this giant honeypot mm. of all the funds of the one bridge, which are in right. the same place. This actually reminds me of something that I wanted to ask you, and it gets back to the multi-chain versus absolutist argument or tension. And I guess Tezos has been around for a long time, and you know you've been doing this for a while. You you're well known in the industry. You've talked to a bunch of people. You have different partnerships. What is it like actually going out and selling the technology to a company or convincing some sort of entity to use it? Like, what is that? I guess, endeavor-like? And how do you compete against something like Ethereum or Solana or whatever? Yeah, so, you know, in, in general, it's I, I don't go around to companies who have no interest in using blockchains and sell them. Like, you should be using, uh, you should be using, because in general, there's some existing interest. I'm sure some blockchains do that. I mean, th- there's probably a few of them at this conference. Yes, it's 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 quite possible, but you know, by and large, people are you know even every large institution has at least you know every, every bank since two thousand thirteen has like an innovation center that actually wants to do something. Right. So there's already you know like at least some existing interest and some ideas of uh, uh, of doing something. So it's more about like you know why should we use uh, what should you, what should they use Tezos as opposed to any other uh, any mm-hmm. other blockchain? And then you know we rely on. Uh, uh, some of the uh, good attributes of Tezos, which uh, is uh, very strong decentralization, um, the fact that we have a really good software stack for building so, um, secure application. It's, I think, a lot easier to verify the security of uh, contracts written on uh, on Tezos and on uh, contracts that you that use Solidity. A uh, good developer community. Sometimes it can just be handholding. Sometimes people say, well, you know what, I've tried to build on this chain and I couldn't find any help. And being able to uh, go to these people and provide um, te- technological expertise makes a big difference. And I want to get your take on another big thing that's going on in uh, crypto right now that's attracting all kinds of controversy and medium posts and tweets. <laughs> and that is uh, the chain Luna. And is like this. So the deal is, in my understanding, maybe you'll, you'll explain it better, but there's a chain called Luna and they have a stable coin called UST. And they've, uh, you can get 20% on uh, USC if you buy this coin and then like stake it and people are making tons of money and it's going up. And then also I think the Luna Foundation is buying a bunch of Bitcoin, like billions of dollars worth to build this war chest to hold the peg of the stable coin because to hold a stable coin's peg, there's a lot of interest in stable coin architecture and design. And some people think like this is like going to blow up. And someone once told me it's like all the stuff that you're worried about with Tether, you should be looking at Luna. And other people are like, super bullish on it. What is your read of this situation? I see more talk about this story than a lot of other things right now. Yeah, I have, uh, you know, I have uh, my, my theory is no convertibility, no parity. So you cannot, if you cannot convert uh, your assets from, uh, from your dollar stable coin into dollars, you're not going to have any form of parity. Right. And it's it's such a powerful law. I mean, even you know you, you saw it in equities. Uh, the classical example is um, uh, Shell Royal Dutch, uh, where after a uh, or 
Royal Dutch Shell. Where yeah. after a merger, they had uh, shares trading on uh, in Amsterdam and shares trading in London, and they're the same equities. They give shareholders exactly the same rights, and one traded, you know, for for years at like a fifteen percent discount to the other, mm-hmm. and 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 they're the same instrument. But because you could not convert one into the other, so if you don't have, if you cannot just hope that people are going to be rational, you need arbitrageurs to be able to come in and right. use the arbitrage. So with a lot of fractionalized, uh, with a lot of like fractionally backed stable coins, the arbitrageurs can do that. Um, to some extent, but the system relies on constant growth in the number of people who want to hold a coin. And if you don't have this growth, and if you have, you know, as soon as you go through a contraction uh, and people start asking for redemption, then the system collapses. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, how Basis, for example, is built, and that's how, uh, or wanted to be built. Luna is a little different. Um, what they're doing essentially is they're saying, okay, so we have an idea of the price of Luna in, uh, in US dollars. And so anyone who, who comes in can uh, issue some against, uh, uh, you know, can burn some Luna and issue some, some, some USD or do the opposite. And we're going to, you know, pay 20% because, oh, that's great. You know, it will, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a growth. It, it's a way to grow. The difficulty with that is that there's no limits to how much uh, USD can be, uh, uh, can be created. Mm-hmm. And the Luna holders are actually paying for those 20%. You know, the 20% are coming from, from somewhere. Now, they're happy to do it because they're saying, well, you know, the growth and the demand in the stable coin creates... Uh, visibility for the ecosystem, it creates hype and it creates market cap. But there's limitations to uh, to uh, to how that works. What they don't do, what you need to do, is that you need to be able to set um, the interest rate in a way that's going to balance um, the supply, and the supply should be determined by what's backing it and the demand, which is you know how many people actually want to hold this uh, this stable coin. And they don't have a mechanism like uh, like this. And instead of building this mechanism, because you could do that, you could you could do something where you say, look, we want to have no more than 30% of the market cap of Luna being, being into UST. And if we have more than 30%, then uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll lower the interest rate, including you know, potentially going ne- negative. And if we have less, we'll... So there, there's a mechanism that works. Instead of that, they're going and saying, oh, we're going to buy Bitcoin, which is, you know, if you're going to have also some centralized ownership at and go and buy, you know, go go and buy some uh, USDC go buy some yeah. or some, what's, of dollars. Like, why would you? What's the back? rationale for doing? What do they say? Is the I think the rationale is headlines. Oh, okay. like, wow! We're the biggest holder of we're the biggest holder yeah. of Bitcoin. How cool is that? Yeah. <laughs> or potentially is the idea that well, maybe Bitcoin appreciates and uh, and, and and that helps and us that, with yeah, our uh, unbacking yeah. problem. Yeah. Um, since you mentioned arbitrage there, uh, I, I was wondering, given your ETF market making background, do you see a lot of parallels between the world of crypto and um, and ETF trading? Um, ETF trading, not not per se, right? Not directly, but just having a general financial background, I think, is helpful mm-hmm. when looking at a lot of DeFi protocols and understanding how they uh, how they work or don't work. Mm-hmm. I have. A- Question and again, it's sort of about these parallels. So one, people got hyped up about blockchains early 2021 when the Robinhood stuff was going on, and people started learning about payment for order flow, and they're like, oh, you're giving a penny or a millionth of a penny on every trade to some high frequency trader jumping ahead of you, and so forth. But crypto or blockchains themselves, and Ethereum and other smart contracting platforms have this concept of MEV, minor extractable value. And if I want to place a trade, you know, blocks only happen every once in a while. And in theory, that trade goes out there and everyone can see it. And a miner can jump ahead of, can I think is how it works. So essentially okay. jump ahead of me and get a better price on that execution and then sell it back to me and I get a worse execution. How big of a problem is this? Can you like talk like, and how does it work on uh, Tezos and what are the sort of like things that people should understand about, uh, you know, the power that miners have or the, uh, you know, what, how MEV comes out of the system? Wow, that's a big, uh, that's a big, that's a big I know, it's like, I, these are things that we haven't really talked about before and you're good at explaining these things. So I figured mm. I would just give you a bit. Yeah, I'm happy to, hide, to, hide, to dive into it. So the first thing to understand is that uh, order flow is not fungible, right? Order flow that comes from retail trading is not the same thing as order flow that comes from, uh, Goldman Sachs, or that comes from a fund manager. You know, uh-huh. if I come to you and I say, "Hey, you know, I want to buy this uh, this equity from you or this shares from you," yeah. like, sure, sure, you know, or maybe maybe not. But if if if, if Goldman Sachs come to you and say, "Hey, don't you want to buy this from us?" All right, so this is like retail flow is much more desirable because we're all dumb. 
It's not even that you're dumb. It's like it's just not informed. You're, you're yeah, buying, yeah. you know, you're buying it because either maybe you're gambling or because you're saying like, I like this stock, I want to yeah. buy it for retirement and so on and so forth. This is not like you have just received some information right. through a wire about something and you've done all of that and now you know that the the, the execution is going, right. the price is going to go down. So it's quite different. And um, once once upon a time. Um, you didn't have to mix all the order flow together. So if you were a big fund manager and you have this large S&P fund and you need to rebalance and you talk to another big fund manager and, you, and they need to rebalance and then you strike a deal because you know that the other person is not trying to screw you, right? So you're, they're, they're trying to do the You're same trying thing. to solve a mutual problem. Yes. And also you're going to do repeat business with them. That's quite important. And that's, you know, that happened upstairs in IC. Uh, and then at some point, the SEC looks at this and say, well, you know, we see all these big trades happening mm-hmm. and they're very advantageous, but the retail... This is Reg NMS, right? This is Reg NMS, yeah. yeah. Okay. The, the retail guy doesn't get access to that, so we're going to put everything on the electronic exchange. Right. And brokers will have to route to uh, whichever exchange has the best, you know, the, the NBBO, the best big and ask. And a lot of institutional investors, when they start doing that, they had no idea how to do it. So now they start showing these big orders, uh, or even you know if they chop them up, they don't do it in a, in a they don't really do it in a way that hides the vo- amount of volume that they want to uh, to do, and they get eaten by high frequency traders mm. who uh, appear as a cottage industry as soon as uh, the regulation is passed. And so a lot of uh, uh, a lot of these uh, big um, sell side people get very very upset at it. And if you read Flash Boys, it's very one-sided book that talks mm. only about the sell side doesn't interview a single person on the frequency yeah. trading I re- side. I remember there was this crazy bit in Flash Boys where he was talking about he was about to do like a retail trade and he was about to click like order or buy and then he saw the price move on his screen and he was convinced that it was because, you know, Goldman Sachs was front running his re- his like tiny retail trade. And, and it's bizarre because it's also presented, I think, like in 2010 as a, like, oh, I'm uncovering this big secret. And I'm like, I started working in Goldman Sachs in 2009 because people were talking about this on TV and I thought it was cool. <laughs> <laughs> so, this is, you know, it was on CNBC. It's not yeah. like... They were uncovering a big conspiracy. Um, and, and, you know, people adapted, of course. So they, they started using execution brokers uh, where, you know, they will say, no, we'll, we'll, we'll take your order, chop it up, and then put it, on the, put it on the exchange. But so now, as a result, what happens is um, you get internalization of flow. So you get this retail flow. Right. And if you send a retail flow to the exchange, the retail is going to get a worse price because the exchange doesn't know anything. The exchange says, whoa, 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 wait a second. We don't know who you are. Mm. You could be retail. You could be a hedge fund. We're going to be giving you wide quotes because we don't know. Whereas as a broker, you know the order flow is not uh, is not toxic. Uh, that's a word that's used for like yeah. uh, informal flow. It's, it's not informal order flow. So you can give it a better price. So you're going to match it internally. You're going to give it a better price than the NBBO, which you're, you know, you're allowed to, uh, you're to do that. You're going to report the trade to the exchange. Uh, and that's it. Or you're going to give the customers the NBBO, but actually you internalize it for something better. So the customer feels like, oh, I haven't paid anything, you know. Right. But actually you've made money because you can quote tighter uh, on your internalized flow than you could on the uh, than you could on exchange. So retail really won out uh, out of this. Like the small retail mm-hmm. guy who's like just buying single name stocks. The market's much more liquid for that. I would say the losers out of this have been large institutional uh, traders who now have to either use execution brokers or dark pools. So here's a a very broad question based on that very long and detailed answer. But what is crypto trading like behind the scenes of exchanges? Like how transparent is it and what sort of execution are people getting? Right. And the MEV aspect. So it's like what are are the equivalents? Like how big are some of these? uh, So the equivalent to MEV is is putting your giant order on the exchange and everyone knows what you're about to do. uh, And so people can get get ahead of you. The difference is that if I put a giant order with my broker, at the very least, the broker has a fiduciary responsibility towards me. Hmm. You know, I'm I'm his client and so they have to do things a, a certain way. Whereas... I don't have any fiduciary relationship with a miner. Right. Now, there's nothing stopping people from building these relationships. You know, as, as a trader, you could go to uh, block producers and say, I want you to promise me that when I send you an order, you're never going to include, you know, you're never going to show it to anyone else and you're going to include before everybody. Like, you could do that, but people don't do it. Do you think that's going to happen? No. Like, oh, you don't? <laughs> no, I, I think what's going to happen is people are going to build better protocols, which are going to remove some of the, uh, uh, some of the uh, extractable value. Do you think regulation will come to the space? Like, will will the SEC, for instance, get inter- interested in best execution for for retail traders in crypto? So I I, I, I don't read tea leaves. I I think it's possible because 
people have made MEV into some sort of moral issue, which I think is dangerous. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the word saying like, oh, the miners are exploiting people, they're taking advantage and so on and so forth. One thing that I think would be more helpful to frame it as, and again, I said, is like, if you want a fiduciary response, you know, if you want a fiduciary relationship with your miners, you should ask for it. What I would worry about is a regulation that says that by default, as a miner, you have a fiduciary responsibility with people, which I don't think you should have. What about if I have a fiduciary responsibility with a brokerage that, for instance, is providing me crypto exposure through my 401k, as I think someone is doing now? I, I forgot the name, but you know, various people are starting to do this in a sort of more regulated way. How does that fit into the execution? Uh, well, in, in in that case, of course, you know, the broker should not like favor another client or themselves in uh, in doing the transaction. Now, but if they if if they trade, and just to be clear, this happens for on-chain trading when you use DeFi right. protocols. It's not an, it's not directly an issue. With uh, uh, trading on centralized exchanges, mm-hmm. I think you know. A lot, first of all, a lot of it comes from the latency of, uh, of chains. The more latency you have, the more MEVs there's going to um, um, there's going to be because mm-hmm. quotes are not adjusted in uh, in uh, in real time. So mm-hmm. it's partly a fraction of that. And the way in which protocols have been designed, if you are in a system where you can't adjust quotes really rapidly, you need to build batch transaction mechanisms, and they're harder to program. But once you have this, you can reduce the MEV on uh, on exchange a lot. And I think we'll see that happen. So just going back to the turtles at the beginning of this discussion and plastic bags on the blockchain, I, I um, I was packing up my apartment in Hong Kong a few months ago, and I noticed that a bottle of balsamic vinegar that I had that I never used <laughs> was it. Ha- it was on the blockchain, right? You could trace it to mm. test its validity. And big existential question here, but it, is the future just everything on the blockchain? And how do you differentiate between the importance of having something like plastic bags being tracked and traceable versus having something like a store of value that people are using uh, to hedge against inflation or for whatever reason? Well, I think there's more value in the store of value aspects than the supply chain applications. Mm. A lot of the supply chain applications we see on blockchains, honestly, are um, stone soup. Mm. You know, you'll see IBM go to these uh, people and say, uh, put everything on a blockchain. But if you digitalize your entire chain, right, where you have, you know, like you can scan QR codes and do all of this and put it in a system. And then, you know, like you've you've solved 99% of your problem and then you put it on blockchain, you know, why not? But that's not really what's driving the... uh, uh, the value. I, I believe there's value in digitizing uh, and, and, and having um, cryptographic signature on supply chains, absolutely. I don't think the blockchain adds a whole lot to, uh, to this. All right. Well, uh, Arthur Brightman of uh, Tezos, thank you so much. That was a great conversation. I feel like the uh, we have really good conversations with like the people who did some did, actually did some time in the TradFi trading world. <laughs> that seems to be like the sweet spot for people who can explain things. So thanks for coming on Oddlock. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much, Arthur. That was great. I guess I said that at the end there, but I do feel like the best explanations and conversations we have on this space are often with someone who did some like time trading and some legacy institution and can sort of, I guess I would say like translate some of these ideas Absolutely. back and forth. But I also feel like there's a tendency in crypto for people to talk about like all these issues are yes. brand new when in fact they have been, yeah. you know, very diligently thought out many years before by traditional financial institutions. And there's a reason why, you know, they do it a certain way. But execution, for instance, is something that's been top of mind for a lot of people for decades. I still think people should just chill out. It's like, it's just a penny. <laughs> or it's like, it's just a fraction of a penny. What's the big deal? Um, the other thing that I liked from that conversation was the description of DeFi. Yeah. Uh, you know, the question of what is the export here? And we've talked yeah. about it before, mm-hmm. but like, what exactly are we doing other than dealing in more DeFi? Well, well, you used to make fun of me because early on in some of our first DeFi conversations, I would like, well, the whaling expedition. And it's like, is I would the, never is, make fun of Is you. the protocol actually, you know, it's like VC. It like got its roots kind of in funding whaling expeditions. I never made fun of you. I just questioned why you were obsessed with whaling expeditions all of a sudden. Fair enough. But anyway, like that is like, you know, it's, as Arthur pointed out, like it's not that exciting if it's just tokens, trading tokens, trading tokens and more tokens. Yeah. Or it's not that world changing. Or boxes. Or, box, being or tokens, <laughs> tokenized boxes. Yeah. 
All right. Uh, shall we leave it there? Let's leave it there. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our guest on Twitter, Arthur Brightman. He's at Arthur B. Follow our producer, Carmen Rodriguez, at Carmen Armin. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcasts, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>